Years ago, when I was working as an engineer in Knoxville, Iowa, I did a project to automate or semi-automate a packaging line. And uh, all the packaging line would do there was put finished rolls into boxes to ship to vendors, okay? And so when you do a project like that as an engineer, you would uh, be asked to do some initial training so that the, the employees would know how to work the, the equipment. And in that particular plant, the packaging was the, the, the first line that people who were hired would work on. It was like the starting point uh, in, that, in that plant. And I noticed that I was getting pulled over frequently and asked to train and to train. Now, my office was right on the other side of this area of the plant, and every time I went out to the plant to go to anything, guess what? I had to walk by them. And it wasn't like every day, basically, can you come train this person? Can you come train this person? Can you come train this person? And I began to notice a, a pattern. Um, a lot of the new employees that we were hiring didn't have very good hand dexterity. Do you know what I mean by that? They fumbled a lot. And they had a hard time aligning the rolls and set, uh, putting a center tube down. In fact, a couple more were downright painful to watch. And so I thought, when I get my opportunity, I'm going to ask the human resource manager, how do you determine who you hire here at, at, at the plant? And so one day he was out on the floor, and I grabbed him. and I said, hey, you know, I'm having to do a lot of training in this area. How, how do you hire these people? Here's what he said. He said, we get so many applications that we're overwhelmed. And so we put them in a big stack. It's about four inches tall. And we pick every third one and hire them. I said, for real. That's really human resource management at its best. <laughs> you know, really, you don't do any, like, simple testing and see if they can even, you know, like a simple dexterity. Nope. I said, ah, that explains a lot. And I explained that to the manager of the production area that was pulling me over all the time. I said, I don't think that we can train these folks out of this. You need to figure out how to hire differently. But anyway, what I realized was this. Where you start is often where you end up. The starting point matters. Your approach to things matter because oftentimes it determines, you know, the result. And this is precisely the kind of thing that Paul's talking to us about in Romans chapter 6. He is saying, your approach to mastery over sin matters tremendously if you want to have the result of genuine life change. And in, and in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul gives us a two-pronged approach to how we can master our sin. And the starting point is really summarized for us in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, which says this, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that verse provides a summary of our message from last week and a summary for the message this week. And it's simply this, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. This is a great starting point, a great approach for genuine life change. Now, I've seen as a pastor many wrong approaches to life change. And I want to just share one with you that kind of bubbles to the surface frequently. People will come to me and say, you know what? I need to straighten my life out. I'm really not doing well. And, and then I'm going to come to God, and then I'll come to your church. Like, that's what I really care about, coming to my church. They wrongly assume that since I'm a pastor, everybody I meet, I want them to come to my church. No, you know why I went into pastoring? Because at one point in my life, Jesus Christ came into my heart and he changed everything. 
I was on a trajectory of depression and hopelessness and endless anxiety. And then I met Jesus, and everything changed. And the good gift that I received from God, I want others to experience. Whether you come to my church or not, well, I care about it, but not really that much. Amen? And here's what happens when, when once begin to approach genuine life change this way. Well, I'm going to straighten my life out. You know how that's going to go, right? That's not going to go very well. Because you can't do it on your own. It's virtually impossible. And one that tries to do it on their own will experience frustration and anxiety. We simply cannot be right until we're ones who admit we're not right and let Jesus make us right. That's our reflection thought for the message this morning. You can't be right until you admit you're not right and let Jesus make you right. For more than 20 years, a professor named Edwin Keedy at the University of Pennsylvania Law School used to start his first class by putting two figures up on the blackboard, the number four and the number two, just like that. And he would ask the class, what's the solution? So what do you think the solution is to four and two? Any guesses? You're not going to say anything, are you? What would you say? Six. Thank you. It's like, thank you, John. You're so courageous. Four plus two equals what? Yes. Any other ideas? Two, because four divided by two equals what? Simple elementary math. One other one, maybe? Eight. Yes. And he would get all these responses, and to each response, he would go, no. No, no. And then he'd say, all of you failed to ask a key question. What's the problem? You jumped, into right, you jumped right into giving a solution because I asked you for the solution, but you didn't ask what's the problem. And, and he said, until you know what the problem is, you really can't formulate a solution. He said, it's like the person polishing the brass on a sinking ship. Solving a problem, but not the problem. Much of us spend our life solving problems that aren't the problem because we don't know what the problem is. And Paul has made it abundantly clear, as well as the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that our problem is sin. Until we acknowledge that and admit it, that I can't be right unless Jesus makes me right, We're not going to solve the right problems in life. And we have to understand what the problem is and then approach that problem, as Paul specifies here, in this two-pronged approach of counting myself dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked about being dead to sin a lot, didn't we? We're not going to talk about that much today. Do you remember what we said? Dead men don't. That was so pathetic. So say it with me. Dead men don't sin. Here we go. Dead men don't sin. This morning, we're going to go to the other side of the equation, and we're going to talk about what it means to be alive to God in Jesus Christ. This is how you can experience genuine life change and overcome the mastery of sin and become what is called a sanctified follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, sanctified or sanctification means to make holy, set apart from common usage. It implies both a change of status, you are made holy, H-O-L-Y, by the sacrifice of Jesus, 
And it implies a change of state. You are becoming holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, God's person in all areas of your life. So when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, at that moment, God looks at you, and what he sees is the blood of Christ covering over you, and you become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, and you are a holy person in God's sight, H-O-L-Y. But at the same moment that that transpires, you are to become W-H-O-L-L-Y, God's person in all areas of your life. And you are to get to the point where this keeps going on, where when you discover, oh, I'm not doing something I ought to be doing, you quit striving with the will of God, and your will quickly aligns with the will of God. And you say, God, whatever you will for me, I will do that. And the more compliant you become, and the more, you know, quickly at responding, the more then you're going to step into and experience the transformative power of God in your life. So this morning we're going to count ourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. When I was looking at this Romans 6 scripture, I think it's really a, a really good detailed explanation of a big biblical principle found throughout the New Testament. It's found in Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 22 through 24, as well as elsewhere in the Bible, I call it the principle for life change, and it's simply this. You'll see it all over in the New Testament once you begin to look for it. Put off the old life and put on the new life in Jesus. Put off the old life and put on the new life in Jesus. Now, Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24, which articulates this big biblical principle, says this. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God and to righteousness and holiness. And I don't know how you think, but I think this way. I see this great big principle. It's all over in the Bible. And I ask myself, how do I put off? What does that mean? How then do I put on? What does that mean? That's what the Apostle Paul is answering here in Romans chapter 6. And the way you put off is by counting yourself dead to sin. A lot of people think they put off by creating a bunch of rules or trying really hard. How does that work for you? Have you been around somebody that just here's how you do it. You have this rule. That's life-giving, isn't it? Because we can follow rules really well. Amen? How about you? I'm not very good at following rules. In fact, when I see a rule, I say, why? Amen? And that's kind of our human sinful nature. Why? I don't know if I even like that rule. And then what I see sometimes happens is this. Followers of God will zone in on a certain aspect of God and use that as justification to do all kinds of things wrong. Maybe realizing it, maybe not realizing it. My God's a loving God. You ever hear that? Oh, usually when that's said, they mean I'm going to do some things that are probably not biblical at all. But my God's a loving God. Or my God's a forgiving God. And, and that's an erroneous application of the nature of God to a, a, a life of license of doing what I want to do. Romans 6 tells us, how to do this, how to put off and put on. So if you're a note-taker, you might be uh, frustrated because I'm not giving you these notes. I'm going to just give you the notes. So count yourself dead to sin is how you put off. Counting yourself alive to God in Christ Jesus is how you put on. 
So last week we read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. This morning I want to read the same scripture, adding to it, going all the way through verse 14. So some of this is going to sound redundant, that's okay. And the reason I'm adding a few uh, verses on is that they talk about what it means to be alive in God and Christ Jesus really well. So listen to the scripture once again. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know, I feel like I'm in northern Minnesota, or don't you know, sorry, if you're in Minnesota and you'd know, don't you know, my relatives say, oh, don't you know, all the time. And they say oofda too, and I try to not say those things. Oofda, oh, don't you know. Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For you know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin because dead men don't sin, right? Dead men don't sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's last week's message and this week's message in a phrase. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is good stuff. Tough, but good. So let's talk about what it means to be alive to God in Christ Jesus. We're going to major on that part of the approach today. First, it means this. We begin to talk on this last week. I'm going to really talk on it this morning. You have a new life in Jesus. You have a new life in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 15 through 19, really expands on what it means to have a new life in Jesus. And I'm going to read that to you this morning, and then I'm going to use this at, it as our text to really talk about what it means to be a new creation, a new person, having a new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen to this scripture. It says this, And he, Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one with, from a worldly point of view. There's one thing we don't do anymore, right? We have a perspective change. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. We're a new person. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not counting people's sin against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We have a new purpose. So let's talk about what it means to have new life in Jesus for a few moments. First of all, you have a new perspective. You have a new perspective. One day a boy was playing 
baseball alone in his backyard. He was a very creative, imaginative boy. He proclaimed, I'm the greatest hitter in all the world. So he throws up the baseball, right, and takes a big swing and misses. Strike one, he says. Not phased by strike one, he kind of dusts himself off, does the things he sees the major leaguers do, the justice set, does all that kind of stuff. Throws the ball way up in the air, takes a big swing. Strike two. Well, now he's going to get serious. He spits in both hands, you know, does what they do. He doesn't know why. He's just copying them and kicks the dirt off his shoes, and he's determined to hit that ball out of the park. He throws it up, swings huge. Strike three. He quickly says, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. (laughs) It's a good story. He had a perspective change. We, as ones alive in Jesus Christ, we need to have a radical perspective change. We no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view because we've been born again in Jesus. We see things differently. We have a perspective now that comes from the Lord, and we see things in light of eternity. I have a couple examples of how this can work itself out in your life. We quit looking at this life as though it's all there is. We quit living for temporal things. They quit dominating our perspective. They quit being what we chase after. I remember one week in in New Hope, it was a tough week. Uh, We had three funerals in one week. Uh, And the oldest one was 54. And it went down from that to younger and younger. And I remember going through that week of funerals, being exhausted, but getting to the end of it, realizing the truth of James in this epistle where he said, we are but a vapor. We are but a mist. Here a little while and then gone. And I remember the urgency that I preached with for about two months after that. We are but a vapor. We are but a mist. Life is not a sure thing. Do you know who you are in Jesus Christ? You see, we don't see things anymore from a worldly perspective. If we're uh, uh, made alive in Jesus, we have a different perspective. Amen? And, And we don't live like those of the world because Christ has changed our perspective. Another change of perspective that's happened to me a lot recently, especially, is this. I just don't expect people who don't know Jesus to act like people who know Jesus. Why would they? Why would we think they would? Why do we think someone that's far from God should have the morality that we have? Why would they? Why should that frustrate us? Why should that surprise us? Because they don't know Jesus. They're going to act like people that don't know Jesus. Amen? They're going to flip you off in traffic. They're going to honk at you because they're impatient. No, we shouldn't do that. You shouldn't flip anybody off in traffic. You might want to give a toot-toot when someone's texting at the stoplight and you're waiting on them, amen? <laughs> the other day, I was coming home, and uh, I was going downtown, and the girl had their blinker on to turn left. And I turned my blinker on because I forgot to turn left. And I started to turn, and she looks at me, Arr! I go, you have your blinker on. Oh. She, I could see her go, oh. I thought she was going to turn, but she was, uh, I don't think she was saying nice things. Anyway, you follow what I'm saying. Why would we expect people who aren't of Jesus to act like people who are of Jesus? We don't see them from a worldly viewpoint anymore. We see them as, as God would see them. 
because we've been made alive in Jesus Christ. So here's a takeaway. What in your worldview needs to change? What maybe is worldly right now that needs to come under the lordship and the perspective of God? Here's a second point here that we see in this Second Corinthians scripture about what it means to be alive in Christ. You are a new person. If you receive Jesus as your Savior, I'm saying that to you right now. You are a new person. And rather than try to explain this, we're going to sing a song that gets after it really well, and I want you to experience the fact that you are a new person in Jesus. All things are being made new. And experience that this morning. Reflect on this morning as they sing. Maybe you want to sing with them. You can do that if you'd like to. But, but quietly in your heart say, I'm a new person. I don't live anymore. You live in me, Jesus. And rejoice in the truth of this song.
our reflection uh, thought for this point. Do you see yourself as a new person in Jesus? Do you see yourself that way? Ephesians 2.10 tells us that uh, we are God's handiwork, his masterpiece, his beautiful creation, so that we can um, do good works with God ordained for us to do. I don't know, a lot of us grew up in tough situations, or maybe you're in a tough situation right now. Maybe you're just not in a good place right now. I grew up in hearing a lot of lies told to me about who I was, and, and it, even in, our, in the family, my, it seemed like my dad's main objective was just to make us quiet all the time. So I grew up thinking, don't bother anybody. Nobody cares. And a lot of us grew up in that kind of situation. And seeing model for you that the way people cope with things is by drinking, and lots of anger and fighting, and that was home life. And you grow up in that stuff, and that's like, that stuff is despairing, hopelessness. And then you come to Jesus, and it's almost like too good to be true when you first hear it. You mean he just loves me? What do I have to do here? Because I grew up, you have to perform. You have to do some things to be accepted, so therefore I did sports because I got acceptance there. And I think a lot of us have a lot more baggage than we realize. It's two things that need to happen today. If you don't know Jesus, first of all, you've got to start there. You've got to know Jesus. And you've got to know that he loves you unconditionally. He loves you because of who he is, not who you are. And the best thing you can ever do is give your life to him because life becomes what it's supposed to be. But the other thing is, listen, we need to step into this new life. We need to step out of the old and into the new. We need to embrace it. And some of us are living in ways that we don't need to live in anymore. It's gone. And you need to begin just say over yourself, I'm a new creation in Christ. I no longer live. He lives in me. He's making all things new. So do you see yourself as a new person today? I want to talk with you with one more uh, point here from 2 Corinthians. And it's simply this. You have a new purpose. Because you have a new life in Jesus, you have a new purpose. You've been given the ministry of reconciliation. What Paul means by that is wherever you go, wherever you find yourself, wherever you're interacting with, whatever situation you're dealing with, you bring Jesus to bear on that. You bring his ways to bear on that. You bring his life to bear on that, his light to bear on that. And as you do that, guess what? 
You're a minister of reconciliation. You're reconciling all things back to God. That's your new purpose now. That's what it means to have new life in Jesus Christ. You're a reconciler. So what does new life in Jesus look like? Well, let me give you the application first, and I'll go on to the next part. Who and what in your world are you to touch for Jesus? So maybe this week you have someone you need to touch or some situation that needs to have the perspective of Christ in it. Bring it to it because you're a reconciler. So what does it mean to be alive in Jesus? New life in Jesus, you have a new perspective. You don't see things from a worldly viewpoint anymore. You're a new creation. God's making all things new. And that never ends. And thirdly, you have a new purpose. You're a minister of reconciliation. That's what it means to be alive in Christ. I want to give you one more point, and then we're going to bring this to a quick conclusion this morning. This is point number two. What, 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 what does it mean to have new life in Jesus? Well, you're to give no more response to sin that a dead man would. We talked about that. Instead, you're to offer yourself and the parts of your body as instruments of righteousness. Your life is to become an offering to God. That's your act of worship. By offering your life to God, by living a way he's designed you to live and wants you to live, you are worshiping. Now listen to this. We will worship something. We are designed to worship. So if you don't worship God and make your body an instrument of righteousness to worship him, you will worship other things by default. You just don't know you're doing it. And when you're worshiping something else by default, that's called worshiping an idol, and that's problematic. And we do this much more easily than we recognize. If you make your job what you're about, and you put all your time, talents, and treasures into that job, and that's what consumes you and occupies all of your energies, you're worshiping it. And it's displacing God. As Luke 12, 34 says, for where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. If you put all your time and talent and treasures and invest them all into your spouse, as worthy as that may seem, especially if you're newly married, you can set him or her up to be an idol. That's not good material for a good marriage. Trust me, do not make your mate an idol. They can't live up to it. Don't do that to them. It's impossible. Only one deserves that kind of adoration. That's God. I always say this, marriage is a great training ground for character development. It is. And I love my wife dearly, and I can't imagine doing life without her, but... I worship one person, that's the Lord God, and I make sure then I invest in that, that, that God is getting my investment so that my heart follows and so that I'm worshiping him. That's why we're to offer ourselves and the parts of our bodies and instruments of righteousness to him. I need to bring this to a conclusion today. I love how Paul concludes this section of Romans 6. For sin shall not be your master because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. Now, I have seen this scripture so misused, it makes me kind of ill. I've heard many a person say when they're doing something questionable, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Where in the world have you been? Did you read the first 13 and a half verses leading up to that concluding thought? Paul's talking about this idea that sin shall not master us. That instead, we're going to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In fact, 
It says right here in verse 14, for sin shall not be your master. So to use, because you're not under the law, but under grace, to say I'm under grace, not under the law, to do something questionable, I'm going, oh my goodness, just go to the first half of the verse. It's not what it's saying. What Paul is saying here is, just count yourself dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus Christ. It's enabled by God. Because you're not under law, you're under grace. And we have to understand what grace means. Grace means God's enablement to do something I cannot do on my own. And if we don't understand that's what grace means, we think of it as a synonym. I'm going to say this till I'm blue in the face, probably till the day I leave here or die or something. I don't know, whatever. But I've said this over and over again at Grace Point. Sin, or excuse me, <laughs> grace is not a synonym for mercy. It's not a synonym for, you know, forgiveness. Grace is not license to do wrong and having it overlooked. That's not biblical grace. Biblical grace is God's enablement to do something I cannot do on my own. It's being filled with the person of the Holy Spirit so that I abide in that power and I live in a way that I could never live on my own. That's what is meant by God's grace. It's a powerful theological term that we need to absolutely understand. Paul's saying, all this stuff I talked with you about, you can do it because you're not under the law, you're under grace. You have the Holy Spirit living right in you, giving you the power and the desire and the will to actually live this way and to have genuine life change. So here's our conclusion. You're under grace that enables a new life in Jesus Christ. Under comes from the Greek word hupo, meaning to be under its authority, subject to a commanding force. So we have to never think that mastery over some sin in our life is impossible because we're under the grace of God. We're under his enablement so that we can die to sin and we can be alive to Jesus Christ. We can have a true new perspective we can experience what it means to be made new and being a new person, and we understand our new purpose. And all this stuff can be possible, and we can truly offer our body as instruments of righteousness to God because we are under grace. We are people under grace. Amen? Amen? you got to say it louder. Amen? Amen. So here's what I want to encourage you to do this week. We have these books called The Battle Within, these study guides, and I love how part two ends on page 14. Partly because I helped write it, but anyway. So I would like it anyways. But here's how this, this section ends. Practically speaking in Jesus, how do you put off the old and put on the new when it comes to your, and it gives us a list. And this is what I want to leave you with. Now listen, we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have new perspective we are a new person. We have new purpose, right? And we're to offer our body as instruments of righteousness. So how does that practically play itself out in how you use your time and your talents and your resources, how you do your marriage, your career, your education, your mental health, emotional well-being, relationships with others? How does that factor into all these things that you do in life? Consider that this week. Consider that your homework to look at one of these or two of these areas and say, okay, God, how do I do that in such a way that it's pleasing to you 
where I'm not dominated by worldly view, but I'm dominated now by my new understanding in Jesus Christ. Take one of these and do it. Take it home. That's where it's going to matter. Amen? That's where it's going to matter. And you can do your life entirely differently to the glory of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Close the service this morning. Lord God, I want to thank you for today, for this opportunity to dive deeply into Romans chapter 6. I know it's got a lot in there, Lord. A lot of it's kind of hard. But I want to thank you that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That through you, Jesus, we can do all things. That by the filling of the Holy Spirit, we truly can be people under grace who are experiencing a new perspective, a new person, and a new purpose, Lord. We can truly be that new creation that has the experience of genuine life change. And God, I want to pray that you would just grace us this morning to step into this new reality that we're called to live. I want to pray for anyone that doesn't know you, Jesus, today. It can't even become a possibility in our lives, any of this, unless we know you and we're born again. And I want to pray for someone maybe who was like me years ago, just living in the desperation, trying not to be in the way, just trying to figure out how to exist and how to be self-sustaining and just feeling full of anxiety and feeling full of hopelessness, Lord. In fact, I always say whenever anxiety is in my life, something is wrong with my dependence upon you, God. I'm trying to do something I'm not designed to do. I want to pray for anyone in that category today, Lord, just to step into you, Jesus, in faith and receive you as their Savior and begin this wonderful journey of what it means to walk in your unconditional love fueled by your power. And Lord, I know for a lot of us who have been in Christian circles for a long time, we can inadvertently just kind of give up. Well, this is just the way I am. I can't change. And we may be dominated by some wrong thinking, maybe a sinful uh, act, Lord. Would you just set us free from that today? Would you set us free? Would you grace us to be the person you want us to be? Help us to step under that grace, Lord. Help us to step into the power and, and just be the God that conquers in our lives, we pray. For greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. You are greater, Jesus. And we love you and praise you and declare today that we are new in you and you are making all things new and we're gladly receiving it. In your name and by your blood and all God's people said, If you need further prayer, I would encourage you to use the chapel over here on the right side of the church, go through those doors, and there's a prayer team over there who will gladly pray with you about whatever is troubling your soul today. God bless you. You're sent in him. Go be more than conquerors in Jesus Christ.